Well, good evening again. I'd like to structure our reflection on Psalm 27 through the first verse, which I love. The Lord is my light, my salvation. Tonight, I just want to look at what does it mean for God to be our light? And what does it mean for God to be our salvation? So light can serve in a lot of different capacities. It can meet a guide like the moon or a lighthouse. When I think about light as a guide, uh, I think of the moon. When I was in college, when I was a sophomore in college, right after I finished that year, I went backpacking with a group of guys up in the Bitterroot Mountains in Montana. There were about 10 of us. And we drove uh, from Boulder, Colorado to the Bitterroot Mountain Range. And it was about a 14 hour drive. And we arrived at the trailhead at midnight. And instead of camping at the trailhead, we decided that we were going to do our three-hour snowshoe hike into the, into the range starting at midnight. And uh, it was foolish, and we were sleep-deprived. Our friend Drew claimed to have seen uh, some sort of large snow cat while we were on this hike, which we attributed to a lack of sleep. And for the rest of the trip, whenever someone was missing something, we posited... You know, could it, could it have been Drew's snowcat? You know, where's my Nalgene? Could have been the snowcat. Um, but off we went that night going up this trail, and we were, uh, we were led by this brilliantly bright moonlight, and we didn't even need headlamps. It was, it was just so bright on us. It's this steady guide in the night sky. And I think that's what the psalmist is talking about when the psalmist writes, the word, thy word, Lord, is a lamp unto my feet. So the Lord, God, is a, is a moon over all of creation, brilliant and steady, a source of sure guidance, right? And light can also serve as a source of illumination, something that overtakes darkness. So again, if you're thinking about wilderness, if you've ever been atop a mountain when the sun rises, it's incredible to watch the sun rise over a valley and overtake it with light, take over the darkness and, and just spread light slowly across it in the morning. And this reminds me of, of John when he writes, the light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness did not overcome it. So where, where light is, there's no darkness, right? John, of all the biblical writers, seems to love the imagery of light the most. John made sure to capture in his gospel that Jesus called himself the light of the world. And in his first letter, his epistle, 1 John, he says, God is light. If we walk in the light, we are with him. And at the very end of the Bible, uh, in the book of Revelation, John writes about how the city of the new heavens and the new earth won't even need a sun or a moon because God himself will be the shining source of illumination. But what is David Meaning, what is he imagining when he calls the Lord his light in Psalm 27? I think he means both these concepts, guidance and illumination, and, and more. He wants to conjure up the fullness of light as an image, as something that occupies space, as something that is a source of illumination, as something that's a guide. Uh, God's presence spreads across the earth like light occupies whole valleys, driving out darkness. God diffuses himself across nature and up mountains and down valleys. 
across the plains and oceans. His brilliance brings warmth and illumination to the earth. God provides guidance. He shines clarity and assurance that we might perceive what is around us. And these are all beautiful and natural analogies that we can associate with with God as light. But light is also intrusive. It exposes hidden things, and God exposes our hidden things too. And I think that's part of what David's also talking about. That God illuminates dark places where things lurk and scheme and hide because God is light. Think of a basement crawl space or a dark corner in a garage. And if you've ever taken a flashlight to one of those kinds of areas, it has a sort of shock and also some relief. (laughs) Because you're shocked by what you see, but you're also relieved because now you know what the situation is. First you shine a light in a corner and you find some mold, maybe a dirty old latex glove. I was hoping to really gross some people out with that one. Maybe a thousand camel crickets. It can be shocking to shine a light on a dark space, but then you clean it and it feels liberating, right? Maybe before you weren't concerned about the state of that space, but once you had knowledge of it, it just plagues you. And then sweet relief comes when the light clears out that mess. And our souls have dark corners too. We just often don't realize that these places exist, uh, or at least we don't seek to find them, right? Just like a dark crawl space, the light of God can expose grungy stuff in our soul. And it might start, when we start to look at that, it might start to bring up some shocking disgust, and then you have some continuing anxiety until you remedy that dark place. But once cleansed, uh, you can find a lot of peace. It feels uncomfortable at first, but deep down, I think we as humans long for exposure so that we can enjoy purity and peace. We long for the end goal of purity and peace. We want that. Uh, But I think we as humans are uncomfortable with the work that is necessary to get to that. We shy away from letting God do that work on us. But I think that longing is very evident in, uh, in the way that humans behave. And one of the ways that I was thinking about that is in the new minimalism movement. If you don't know what new minimalism is, you've probably seen it. It relates to interior design, and it's the name for how white walls and small proportioned wall hangings and symmetrical plants are, are trendy in design right now. And it, it also kind of encompasses the decluttering movement, if you've ever read the life-changing magic of tidying up. Uh, And the word new minimalism comes from these two women in San Francisco uh, who kind of came up with the name and articulation of this thing that a lot of people were doing. And and the way that they they came up with this concept is they took some psychology and design and they tried to create an aesthetic that sought to pacify anxiety and, and, uh, and minimize stress in the modern home. And on their website, they posit, your external space reflects your internal state. What does your home say about you? Which I thought was kind of like fighting words. I think that uh, new minimalist design has a lot going for it. Uh, It is definitely abused. A theology journal called Comment 
this year called for essays about how new minimalism and the resurgence of mid-century design is just materialism disguised as simplicity. But I think at its best, it's very appealing. Uh, it usually features a lot of light and a lack of color and simple accents and symmetrical plants, and it creates a sense of calm, which is a good thing. Uh, but I quibble with this one principle, which is whether the external space reflects our internal state. Does it? Does, it, does our external space really reflect our internal state? I think it's the opposite. I think for many of us, myself included, a greatly ordered exterior life is a dash in the opposite direction away from the disorder that I feel inside, away from shame and hidden sin. One morning early this week, uh, I quite literally ran away from the light shining on my sin. I was sitting up in bed. I hadn't gotten out of bed yet, and I was reading this devotional on my phone, and I paused to pray. And all of a sudden in prayer, I started thinking about this situation where I've been sort of pushy and, and kind of passive-aggressive. And you know how you recall these things that you, these actions that you do or these things that you say and, uh, and, and they just go over and over, they loop in your mind. Uh, it makes you sort of shiver with regret, thinking, oh, I just wish I had not done that. And I hated seeing these scenes play over and over in my mind. So without thinking totally mindless, I opened Instagram and I, I just started scrolling picture after picture after picture after picture. And minutes later, I remembered that I was praying. I, I didn't even know how I had gotten there. <laughs> but, but my body and mind just wanted so quickly to get away from the embarrassment with, with my, my sin that I just went into this place of distraction. I, uh, I mindlessly pointed the flashlight away from that, that little corner of my soul. But, as the expression goes, sunlight is, is the best disinfectant, right? In, in a figurative sense, light disinfects the soul. First John says that if we expose our brokenness to the light, we will experience forgiveness. I, myself, hold a lot of embarrassment for my big mouth and my arrogant attitude. And I hate seeing light shine on those corners of my soul. Maybe you feel the same. Maybe you have some social regrets or shame. Or maybe you have sexual shame. Or maybe you feel ashamed of your privilege. Or maybe you feel shame for ungratefulness. Um, if you're a parent, maybe you feel ashamed for parenting failures. I assure you that none of us is without some kind of shame and sadly, the busyness of our lifestyles and this landscape of sleek and modern designs enables us to ignore those dank, dark corners and just say, everything is clean and all right. We can cover them and we can let these sins and shame fester. But oh, how sweet the healing is that comes when we shine a light and let the Lord sweep up the broken glass and disinfect the dank basement that is our soul. So don't run away from your sin or try to rationalize it, is my first point. In an age where our narrative is right because we've experienced it, run deeper into letting God and friends interpret and correct your narrative. Confess to each other in your small groups. And, and just know and hear this from our pulpit that counseling is a spiritually healthy practice. 
to bring the darker corners of our souls to light in a safe way. So that's how we can think about God as our light. How is God our salvation? Well, salvation obviously means to be saved, but from what? Sin is the, is the basic answer, but I had a difficult time wrestling with, with just that short answer, with sin and in the words of this psalm. I'm not totally comfortable with the way that David talks about his enemies and the way that he implies that he has some sort of innocent righteousness. This has been true for Christians across centuries. A lot of people have, rightly so, had a hard time with the way that David talks about his enemies and sort of views himself as a victim. Uh, David seems very confident in his own righteousness. And how can he feel so? How can he feel so confident in his righteousness uh, as if he's undeserving of the turmoil in his life? He's a king. He's a man of great privilege. And he's also uh, killed a person and cheated on his wife. And, and, and how can I pray alongside in that when I know my own heart? And I think, I'm, I don't feel confident in my righteousness. The way many Christians have resolved this tension is by reading verses like those found in Psalm 27. Most of the psalm, after the Lord is my light, is my salvation, is David wrestling with feeling like there's these armies coming against him. And the way that Christians have resolved that is by saying, well, if you pray this, pray them as the words of Christ. That he prayed as he suffered the undeserving pain through the cross. So let me read verses 2 and 3 as an example of this. And, and you think about those being embodied by Christ, okay? When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I will still be confident. That's, that's a right way to read these psalms, as Christ's proclamation. All of, us, all of us need to read psalms knowing that we're broken and estranged from God. Because of our own doing, and that Christ took that suffering on himself. That is true for all of us. But many of us, I think, also need permission to read these words alongside David. We all need salvation from our own doing, and many of us need salvation from the harm that others have placed on us too. So this raises a couple of questions for me. First, should we identify ever with these evildoers? And second, if we're identifying with the evildoers, then how can we also identify as the harassed? And then third, if both of these are true, how do we hold them in tension? How can we identify with the evildoers and the harassed and hold these things in tension? So first, should we ever identify with the evildoers? Yes. Always. We're the ones who are devouring the flesh of Jesus and our hearts deploy against God and his sweet creatures. We do, and it is uh, so much more liberating when we can acknowledge that, that our failure exists within us. That's so much more liberating than to paper over it. And it does hurt, like we were talking about, 
in the part I'm light. It hurts to have those things exposed. But it's liberating to say, I'm an evildoer. <laughs> it feels gross, too. I acknowledge that. It hurts to identify as something like that because the semantics of evildoers conjures up judgmental Christians. Um, I think especially those who are overly politicized Christians who want to call different people groups evildoers. That, that, that word is kind of gross. But, but we, if we can identify with that in our relationship with God, it can open up a more real way of understanding how we relate to him. Because we've all done things that just hurt people and hurt God. So for some of us, it's explicit that we've, we've schemed against God. And for some of us, it's more subtle. We, we scheme and grumble and gossip and taint other people's views of, of others with careless words. Or we use people for pleasure or gain or we neglect parents or children because they inconvenience us. And I don't name these things to shame us. I just believe so firmly that when we shine the light of God's word on our souls, we get to see miraculous cleansing and liberty. So if we're the evildoers, if we're the armies of gossips and heartbreakers and connivers, then how can we read as if we're the victims? That's where the Bible so beautifully captures the real God like nothing else. Because religion tries so hard to make God about moral black and whites, but scripture is beautiful in its nuance and paradox. And I think David is the best character for us to examine this quality of God, his people, his scripture. He's the best person to view these circumstances in. Is he depraved and broken? Absolutely. He sent a man to his death so that he could have his wife. Does he love God with the deepest caverns of his soul and all the passion of his heart? Yes. Are forces of flesh and spirit conspiring against God and oppressing him spiritually? Definitely. Sin is not isolated transactions. What I mean by that is, I think we often think of sin as this thing that people are doing, making choices. That this is a sin, and this is not a sin, and that was a sin this way, and this was a sin. And that's just a wrong way of understanding it. And I think if you understand sin that way, then I, then I empathize with why the Bible feels weird to you. <laughs> because it would feel strange that God would just set people up to have to figure out these ways that they interact. And I just want to give you a different definition of sin, which is that sin is more like a pervasive vapor that's just through creation, of which we are all suppliers and also victims. And the sooner we embrace that we're just in a broken reality, the more potent the relief that we can feel from the antidote. So the spring of 2007 was a very formative year in my life. Uh, I just shared my life story at our small group, and it seemed like this would be a good time to share this story publicly in our church. I worked for a church in 2007, and I was on a path to be a pastor and a musician. 
as my life's calling, but the church I worked for was very dysfunctional. And without going into many details, um, I was really being ignored and overworked as an intern. And most of what I was doing wasn't really related to what I was there to learn about. So I asked for some clarity on my job and for some ways to grow, particularly as a musician, since I had been at the church for two years. But there was so much dysfunction in the staff above me that there was little time to work out the issues with, with an intern. And the senior pastor was stressed because he had pushed for a building campaign, but the finances had fallen short uh, and construction had already started. And staff turnover was high because he took his stress out through anger and micromanagement. So I decided that once the building was completed, I would move on. And I informed the staff that I was planning to leave the next month. And this, for some reason, felt like a huge betrayal to the senior pastor. Uh, And he ran into me in a parking lot, and he just began to scream at me. Uh, And he was a lot taller than me, and I was 23 years old, and and he just lit into me in public. And he said some vulgar things, but he also recalled some childhood trauma that I had confided in him. And he basically said that I was disloyal to him because of that. And I walked away in tears, and I felt the most spiritually oppressed uh, that I hope I ever will. Uh, But I took the stress of that year and that vile scene, and I took it out on my girlfriend, who is uh, now my wife, Erin. And I did a lot of harm to our future marriage that year because of the stress and the ugliness of that situation. And I would say that I'm I'm still pretty affected by that. My sense of humor is slowly coming back. But ever since then, I've been pretty prone to fear and anxiety in spiritual settings. And it's important for us to recognize that even though we're a privileged culture, many people in our society have experienced trauma. That sin is not just our own personal ugliness. It's a cocktail of our own selfishness and to varying degrees the harm we've experienced from others. And that salvation is a rescue from both of these. We're all soldiers in the army of harm. And many of us are also stuck in a bunker, trying our best to not be harmed any more than we've already been. And that's why it's a great joy that God is our light and our salvation. In American culture, we have religious cultures that emphasize individual sin as if we ought to all ignore our trauma, ignore our family of origin, ignore the complexity of the world, and make salvation a simple economic formula. And they might say something like, you're broken and Jesus will swap debts with you. And that's not wrong, but it's too simplistic. It doesn't account for the brokenness It comes from both our own depravity, but also the pain that we've experienced from others who might have taken advantage of us, or abused us, or manipulated us. We also have humanist cultures that want to believe that humans can evolve into more and more benevolent creatures, that we can grow 
in our empathy infinitely. And I think that too is overly simplistic. It, it doesn't attribute that we will continue to carry flaws on as a race of people through generations. I'm a broken man, and I experienced deep harm in my youth, and for a while I was pretty resilient, but in 2007 I really let myself start dishing out all the hatred and anger that I had taken on over the years. And I confess today that I really need a light shine on that, on the bitterness in my heart. And I need rescuing from that. And I need rescuing from my oppressors. And you, you need a light too. And salvation, I promise you. You need both. Some of you have been manipulated by someone or abused. Many of us have used other people we have histories of using people sexually. People here have histories of being used by other people sexually. We have habits of gossip or secrecy. We're all a tangled web of victim and oppressor. And I, I say that just to say that that's to varying degrees. You know, as someone, as a white man in our culture, I have great privilege. And so I want to acknowledge that the degree to which I've experienced oppression is probably much less than that of many other people in this room. And so we want to acknowledge that that, that is part of salvation. That is part of what God is bending the arc of creation towards, is resolving that. And so when someone like me gets up and talks about my brokenness and talks about my individual sin, that's true of all of us, and that's true of me. But I don't want to overlook the opportunity to say that also some of you have experienced much deeper harm and that God sympathizes with you and that that's really evident in this psalm. We need a light. We need a bright, all-powerful light to shine in us, to untangle the webs of our own sin and the ways that other people's sin have confused our souls and disordered us. We need salvation. We need a rescue from our depravity. We need rescue from the oppression of dark forces and the selfishness of other people, and our own selfishness. And that is why Jesus came. That's why he came to say that I am the light of the world. That's why he came to say that I am the salvation of humanity. He came to die a death of love. To show us that we're so loved by God that he would suffer death in the most romantic sense we can imagine. That even though a parent or a spouse or a friend abused us or neglected us, that God and Jesus Christ is so in love with us that he would die. That while we've caused immeasurable harm to others, that when we lay our heads to bed in silence and conjure all the regrets of our life, he can pay those debts with his life. All the debts from our gossip, from our materialism, our selfishness, our harsh words, our injuries for which we owe restitution. He pays that restitution with his life. And for those who are owed restitution from others, he puts a down payment on showing you that he loves you by giving up everything. And he didn't even remain a lifeless sacrifice. He's risen. The light and the salvation of the world is in this room and amongst us through the Spirit.
and present in this meal. Amen.